1: My guest today is one of only a handful of Division One college basketball coaches to have won over seven hundred games. He's coached at every level: high school, junior college, Division Three, Division Two, Division One, and at each stop, the program improved. John Beeline is a teacher. He's genuine. He's ethical in the way he recruited players. And he taught them not only how to play the game, but also how to be men. My guest, Coach John Beeline. Welcome, friends. John, it's been ten years since you and I were on a committee with Mary Sue Coleman, and we're involved in bringing <laughs> Dave Brandon into the University of Michigan. Yes, it is. That was that was our
0: first initial meeting there i've been on a few selection committees that was an important one and they branded it an outstanding job at michigan
1: you know it's interesting i've had an opportunity to be around a lot of leaders uh, and what's impressed me is your humanity your humility your ability to treat people the same way as when you first began as a high school coach well i think that that is
0: something that is um That goes way back to my parents and growing up one of nine kids. I mean, you had to do that or you didn't, things weren't good for you in our house if you didn't treat everybody really well. And uh, my parents did an amazing job of that, uh, of of looking at people from all walks of life, all all type of social, all type of incomes and uh, places in their society. And we treated everybody the same. And I think it goes, it goes way back to my my grandparents being, you know, I, my great, great grandparents being Irish immigrants and German immigrants and coming over and just embracing the opportunity. in The United States many, many years ago. And it was passed on. I think I also think any time, Jed, our generation, who's, when your parents grew up in the Depression, they taught you a whole different, you know, lessons in life that we probably miss now because it, they certainly wanted us to have a better life than they had, but their life was tough. And and now, you know, sometimes we do wrong by making our, ki- our children's life so much better than ours. Maybe we're doing them a disservice sometimes because when we had to go through the school of hard knocks, it made us better people.
1: With that said, still your ability to stay within yourself I mean, I've been around the Tony Dungys, the Andy Reeds, the John Woodens of the world, whose award you won. And the similar characteristic is you've had incredible success and you still treat people the same way, which I find to be an unusually tremendous quality. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jed. But I think that hopefully I, I've had
0: a lot of that from the very beginning. But second of all, the more I, I, I teach a course in leadership now at Michigan, uh and i've i've done i do a lot of reading on leadership uh and one of the common denominators of many successful leaders is their humility their, their servant leadership uh and so it's it's something that i i know i was taught as a youngster but at the same time when you see that it it's um, so effective with so many people and and you then you gravitate to leaders like I know one of Tony Dungy's books, and it was so much about that. And John Wooden's books, I, I probably read them all. And he, was, he, he, he coached with such humility and led with such humility. At, um, it, I'm sure that had a lot of effect on how I want to act now because, you know what, Chad, I like to win. And when you like to win, you're, doing, you're willing to, to do a lot of things. And if they say you're, you're going to win more, if you're a more humble person, I'm all about that.
1: Yeah, but the other thing you've done winning wise, and this was even in a vote, that you've done it at the highest level and as the cleanest coach in a profession that doesn't normally act and follow the rules. I think there's
0: probably some truth that there's a few that don't follow the rules. Uh, Or, you know, I, I was taught. I my my uncle Tom Nylan was the athletic director at LeMoyne College. He was the chairman of the, the Committee on Infractions when SMU got the death penalty. I'd imagine that, a Division II AD, hero at the Battle of Uh Bastog- at the Battle of the Bulge in, in Bastogne, Hero, absolutely World War II hero. Taught me as I sat with him many days when I was coaching at Lemoyne. And he 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 told me, John, if you follow the spirit of rules, what's the spirit of the rules? You'll never get into compromising situations. And that's what I did. You know, if they say it's a non-contact period, what's the what's the spirit of that? It? it doesn't it doesn't mean oh, I, it's no contact, but I can bump his parents on the way out the door. No, that's not the spirit of it. So with that in mind. Uh, we, we just, I just tried to go all, and I encourage every coach to do that. What is the spirit of these rules? And then go by them. It'll, it'll be
1: okay. I've never talked with anybody that's done it. High school, junior college, division three, (laughs) division two. Now, how was it trying to get from that division two to that division one job at Canisius? Uh, I know you got turned down at Colgate. How how did you finally break through to division one? uh, uh that was it's a there's crazy stories, but that was frustrating.
0: I think when I was at uh Canisius, or when I was at Lemoyne, I had a couple of you know interests from division one I. I didn't get the Canisius job the first time uh but Marty Marbach got the job it was a great assistant for Raleigh Massimino at Villanova and then uh, a couple of years later, we really had a good year and I think Colgate was had a god off a year, maybe two and twenty five or something. And It was right down the street, forty-five minutes or so from LeMoyne. and and uh, I didn't get that one, and I was brokenhearted. I'll t- just tell you, I just—I remember a year I was married with four children, and I told my wife, "I, just, I need a break," and I just—I drove to my parents' house about two hours away just to think about man, I can't get the worst. At that time, that was probably perceived as the worst Division One job in the country, <laughs> out, out in the middle of Hamilton, New York, and. You know, they had not won. And um, they end up hiring a great guy, Jack Bruin, who got a Donald Foyle and turned it around. When I think about it, in those next two years where I sort of had to rebuild the Michigan or the LeMoyne program again, it prepared me to be ready the next time it op- I, I had another opportunity. And that not only prepared to interview Jed, but prepared to have success. And so when we went to Canisius and... and how I got that job is a long, crazy story that I'm not going to share. <laughs> but there, it was there was a bit of a fluke involved in that one, and I got it and got the opportunity. Once we you had that, you said you're going to make work so hard, and I had a great staff who I had to ask when I got the job. So what do you guys do? Because I never had assistant coaches. So what do you guys do? And they showed me what to do. I had a great staff: Phil Seymour, Mike McDonald, Dave Nyland, That all were uh, really incredible. They led me how to run, how to run things when you had staff. So it was very helpful.
1: So you then have the opportunity to go from Canisius to Richmond and West Virginia, and eventually Michigan. But along the way, you're, you're successful. What is it about going into these programs and turning them around? What do you have to do? How do you change the culture?
0: Well, you know, I, in Michigan, we actually put it down and, and, we actually put it in writing and then taught it every day. There's a tone at the top. You have to set as a leader that when you go in there, you have to be demanding yet be, have empathy. You got to show you're vulnerable uh, when you make mistakes. And the, the the guys got the players and the administration got to look at you and said, you know what? This guy's work. He and his staff are working really hard. They're honest. They're doing the right thing. And we believe in them. I, think it's very easy to prioritize winning first and not, and not culture first. That's, it has a short shelf life. If you're just about winning and you're not about treating people the right way, treating your staff the right way. Um, so yeah, we do, we virtually had core values at every stop of the way. And at Michigan in my third year, when, when things were, Really tough. We had, we are in the NCAA tournament, we had two losing seasons out of three and uh, lost on a half court shot to Evan Turner. I really had to change and really teach core values to my team as opposed to just live core values with my team. And that, after that time that we began to be more engaging in teaching core values, everything took off. It, it's key. Every coach should, you know, I teach a course in leadership right now. Having self-awareness of where you are, leading yourself in that direction, and then leading your team with these strong core values is is one of the great secrets in becoming a successful coach.
1: In terms of recruiting, especially when you got to Michigan, talk about the type of player you were looking for. What in, in terms? There's a skill set, but there's also the intangibles, the DNA, the care. What, what were the traits? that you were looking for in the type of player you wanted on your team? Well, I want one that fit
0: the university of Michigan. I mean, we we have the number one public university in the world and you, you, you can't, you can't go out and say, Hey, this, this guy, everybody's not a perfect fit for that academic rigor and environment. At the same time, we want to be inclusive with young men, who maybe if given the opportunity to go to Michigan could be successful even maybe they even though their high school uh, academics hadn't been uh, as stellar as maybe a regular student, but that's because they were in the gym instead of the library a lot and there's a lot to be said for the person who's in that gym working working really hard so we just look for that guy, but also the big thing was looking for a teammate. Jed, when I would go out on the road and I'd watch guys play in AAU, I was watching them play, and I was watching quickness and shooting and skill level, always watching how they went into their huddle with their team, where they sat on the bench, when the coach was coaching them up, were they listening? Uh, What were they like when their team was up by 30 and the last guys on the team were in? And what were they like when they got beat and they were sitting on the bench, or how did they react? Those were intangibles that we wanted with every one of our players, we didn't, it didn't always work out. We weren't a hundred percent in recruiting without question, but we never cared Jed who we didn't get. We cared who we got. And that, that process of offering a scholarship took weeks and months and sometimes a year before we offered a scholarship to someone. And it was like this, we were offered so few,
1: because we wanted to make sure we got the right guys. You're also a tremendous teacher and developer of people. You weren't always getting those five-star recruits. So talk about how you went about taking a player when they first entered your program, setting up their development program and advancing them as they progress through your university. Yeah. I I think when you say that it's very
0: common and I use it too, three-star, four-star, five-star, that we're saying, all right, he's that recruit now. He's 16 years old. He's a five-star. That could be cuz he was shaving when he was in 7th grade. That's oh. why he's a five-star recruit. And there may be a guy that is uh has has a very young birthday or is from a, a, in a very late maturing family and he uh he would be one too if he he had that much uh, he had grow, he, he had matured quicker. We also, uh, there's a talent of being a good teammate. There's a talent of, of, of length. There's a talent of height that is undetermined at 16 years old. And we really tried to look at that. And then the guy, looking for the guy that wants to develop, I say this, this things that people probably misunderstand, a guy you could lose with. In other words, when you lose a game, he's with you. He's in the locker room saying, Coach, we're going to get better instead of point fingers at his teammates or his coaching staff, guys like that. And if you approach that with a growth mindset, with a, with a big growth mindset, that every must, every loss, every bit of adversity is going to make us better, right? People just develop. We, we had, we've had a lot of success with people going in the pros with that sort of approach that to, today's, you know, John Wooden, right? Make today your masterpiece and every day you're going to get you're going to get stronger and better because you did your very best and you tried to win
1: everything that you did that day talk about though in practice the fundamental things that you'd work yeah. on that some of the other people didn't to really push player development some people don't do that to the degree you did well and I don't know that Chad
0: because <laughs> I've never been to another college practice so I don't know I've been to a lot of high school practices watching people and people tell me that, my assistants tell me that, that we work on pivoting. I mean, we will work on pivoting through the season for hours. It's one of the first things we do when they come in the summer. And a lot, I've had, we've had a lot of people say, you know, the uh, Co- Coach, this is something in sixth grade. Yeah, but you didn't learn it in sixth grade because you're walking or you're off balance. I say, like, for example, this is pivoting, a fundamental. So if, if let's say, uh, Tom Brady, you know, every time he went back to pass, he had poor balance, right, he would throw a lot more interceptions. But he's basically usually in a good position to have balance, so he's on time, on target. Pivoting is one of those things that if you're, if you're on – if you can pivot well, you can shoot well because you're balanced, but you can also find your teammates. It's just an example. We just thought there were some really fundamentals that were yep. being undertaught because of time, because of the lack of people going to to basketball camps anymore, the five-star camp, the Station 13, all these things were great teaching venues that college coaches didn't need to teach. But now it is so many times. And I, I don't know that it's that bad, but they're, they're going to an AAU tournament. They're playing seven games. And uh, in three days, they're just playing. They're just Oh, we won. We lost. Where are we going to eat? You know, it's not. It's not like. Why did we win? Why did we lose? It's not the same importance. So we really tried to get back to that basics, and then I really think it had a huge effect. Why some of our, some of our guys were drafted in the NBA because they had that stuff down and showed it
1: in college. Well, you mentioned pivoting. The other thing you've done a tremendous job of is the three point shot. So how would you? Uh, develop that? How did you refine someone shooting? Uh, Talk about, you know, the the biomechanics associated with that. And is there one perfect way or is it individual?
0: So I I took an interest in shooting only because at LeMoyne College, uh, when I was good, we weren't always blessed with a lot of athletes. But the three point line came in, in my third year there. And it was really an equalizer for us. When you didn't get a lot of you know, that's when everybody threw the ball in the post all the time. Everybody and so you had to have good big men really great big men. Everybody pressed all the time. We didn't necessarily have that type of quickness. And the three-point line comes in and we said, This is this could be our thing. And so we ended up, you know, going that way. But then I said we I took a big interest in shooting when I had a big interest in <laughs> feeding my family, Jed. And Working in the small Catholic schools, one of the ways you fed your family was you had camps. Coach Beheim had a camp down the road at Syracuse with 500 campers. I inherited a camp with uh, with maybe less than 100 campers, and uh, that was not going to feed the family. I mean, Coach Coach Beheim probably had three camps of 500 campers, and and so we said we we cannot compete with Syracuse. So how are we going to do it differently? We're going to have shooting camps. And I bought this little camera for Christmas uh, with one of the camps when I first got there from one of the camps. And I wanted to take pictures of – I wanted to video my, you know, Christmas. And then I started videoing all our games with it, Bring the manager to hold it and video the game. And then I started videoing our guys shooting. And then I started videotaping every, every, every single camper. So if there's – we got our camps finally up to – By videotaping, they get this shooting camp idea. All of a sudden we had sellouts of 200 in every camp. I think last year we had six or 700 people at a camp. Fed the family, but what really happened was I taught myself how to teach shooting. By looking at a seven-year-old shoot and a 17-year-old shoot videotaping and going over it with them, it allowed us to come with a shooting sort of uh, methodology. And you're right. Everybody is different. Everybody's wrists are connected differently. Their elbows are in or out. There's a lot of ways to teach it. And we would sort of like almost like a golf swing. Look what people do well and try and fix that. But it's been a great equalizer for our teams when you have four or five shooters out there like we've had on some of our best teams. The other
1: thing you've been is innovative. I mean, you start people, as you described, wanted to put two people underneath. And all of a sudden, you had four people outside and the big man up top. So, when I uh, talked with Andy Reid, he talked about how he has hired two people, and all they do is look at high school film and plays and come up with different things so that he's always ahead of the game. Yeah. Somehow, you innovate, you continue to innovate in your scheme on offense. Talk a little bit about how that evolved. Yeah. Well, evolves
0: the key word, Jed is that I wouldn't still be coaching after 45 years. I guess I'm not coaching now, but for 45 uh-huh. years I I changed like the wind so that could stay up with it. I mean virtually there was times where we didn't have a ball screen in our offense and 15 years later we lead the country in ball screens. We went to a 131 zone at uh we when I was at Richmond, we went to the A10 and we had we couldn't match up with UMass and Temple and St. Joe's, and these people were monsters at the time in the uh, in in the NCAA tournament. And we we were coming out of the CAA with good players, but not that the size. He said we got to be different, so we reinvented the one three one zone, which had been put into mothballs since the three point shot came out. So if you look at from eighty six all the way to ninety, uh, it was like two thousand. Nobody had played one-three-one 3 because zone because you can't play it. The 1-3-1 going to – people are shooting it out. Of. People had no scheme anymore. But in the 60s, 70s, 80s, people had offenses for it and were used to it. So we did it. It was so successful at Richmond and then at West Virginia. Then I go to Michigan, and, and people had found ways to beat it. So we had to go all man-to-man. So you just got to continue to evolve as a coach, or you can't make it. And so we tried to – have a very open mind and growth mindset to changing how we coach and and making it you know up to speed with the way the game was evolving what's that help me understand help our listeners understand what that means well i think that that you you continue to watch other games i i also think jed once the games and and you when you were coaching you were real to real or maybe vhs We had the film, 16 millimeter. Yeah. Make your own cut ups, do it all. Once the game, and I think you've seen this in football, became computerized where you could virtually watch and cut and edit. I would cut a majority of our film after games. I would cut every practice. Once you start to just like videotaping the seven-year-old in camp, you become a better and innovate, or uh, you become a better teacher of shooting. Once you're watching Wisconsin one day, Michigan State the next, yourselves in practice, the NBA, and you continue to analyze it, you can say, wow, I never thought of that. Why don't I do it that way? Or you look at your team in practice and say, you watch something, somebody's having trouble shooting, or somebody's not finishing, and you say, you see a clip, you show it to them, you work on it, they see it, instead of saying, you know, back in in our day, hey, you big man, you're bringing the ball down too much, you're bringing, and the guy won't even believe you. You show him over and over again it 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 makes that change, so you 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 embrace it and but you tell your team that this is huge for you because you've got to grow from it and and you you're allowing yourself to be coached. So I think all those things, and again, as I said in the beginning, I like to win, so if you don't change, you're not going to win. You just can't do that today. You got to be ready to evolve, unless you have spectacular players.
1: I think one of the things uh, in my role, recruiting people in all different sports, all different um, venues, the number one key is adaptability today. That ability to be adaptable is key. If you're not adaptable, you're going to struggle. Yeah, and I, I think that's where your the, the 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 coaches
0: that were the smartest guys in the room all the time won't, won't won't be in that room much longer if they know it all and and they're not willing to listen and look at other other places and I think that's what's what's so important that you you have to adapt you have to be be vulnerable you, you need to to tell people when you know what we've been trying this but I don't think this is in our best interest I know we did it last year but I, I I've wasted two days of practice on this. We got to change quickly because I don't think it fits this team. That, that gets so much respect as opposed to you say, you know, it's my way or the highway on this. But if you don't look at other teams and really study the game, you won't be able to see that need for
1: vulnerability. You mentioned uh, before we came on the air that you're doing, working with the Big Ten, analyzing games, doing those types of things. I guess two things. Number one, who would have expected, that Ohio state and Michigan's game would be canceled (laughs) over a hundred years with the COVID. Uh, what's your sense of that? Yeah, it is.
0: Um, I've been watching the football and the college basketball now and I feel so, so I just feel my heart goes out because you, Jed, you know how much you train during a year to get to these games and the college football season is, is, and I hope it ends up where we can continue to play and do get you know teams to play more games in bowls or whatever. But this is just um, beyond belief what we've gone through and that uh, I wish we could have done more. I wish. Speaking of vulnerability. I think it's very important that we look at this situation and know the mistakes we've made this time around as a nation as coaches, as everything. And the next time that we're approached with something like this, we can react better to it. But my heart goes out to the coaches, but mostly the players who, coaches, uh, I remember coaching in high school and I was really upset after we lost in a sectional game. And one of the parents came up to me and not mad at me. He said, "You're, you're set a bad example right now because that was my son's last game too. And you're you're thinking you you're the only one that feels bad. Just think how oh, he he's not going to get to play again, and so true. Coaches are going to get to coach again, and but these players it it is just and and forget about basketball and football. Oh, the soccer players and all the women's sports and the baseball players. I mean that it is and senior that class of 2020 in high school also is the class of 20 uh, that is a class of twenty twenty four your freshman year in college is one of the best experiences in your life, and they're being robbed of that too. At the, on the other hand, Jed, you and I all knew people that were laying in the jungles of Vietnam when they're 19 years old, or over in Iraq. And there's worse things that could happen to us. Great
1: teaching moments for our our coaches right now, how we're how we're reacting to these things. Just before we came on the air, Coach Shashewsky came out. And made a comment criticizing the NCAA for what they say, what he said is their lack of, lack of adaptability in that, you know, teams are being shut down, there's a vaccine coming, you know, student athletes are being subject to games canceled, missing practices. So in terms of practice, performance, all those kinds of things. So it looks like he's calling for the, uh, the NCAA to step up and maybe call a moratorium and stop basketball now until after Christmas and all those kind. Do you, now that you're doing games and watching that, do you think we should continue to push through like football did or? I, I wish I
0: had, I wish I had an answer for that uh, because I think there's some very positives the way that we've pushed through so far. Uh, at the same time, you know, we got the Ivy league, not even playing games. I mean, that is, that's, that's really tough. Uh, the, the for those guys who are paying their way to go to college and there's that they're not getting to play Uh, so I don't know if there's the right answer right now I just wish we could go back to last uh, march april and may And had had reacted differently to all this and maybe we would be in that situation right now Because some other other countries are not having some of these issues and so uh, i'm sure that that I do trust our NCAA. I do trust the the, the conference commissioners and they, 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 they do look at this from a holistic point of view, trying to see what's best for the student athletes. They'll find some solution and and we all gotta adapt to it because it is it's unfortunate, but we could be we couldn't be involved in in, in even worse situations. And uh, well we, we gotta we gotta grow from it. It's a, it's a it's a fact. We can't let this we gotta take advantage of it actually jed we got to take advantage of it and learn from it we gotta grow from it, and uh whatever that is, I think we'll figure it out in the year ahead. Your
1: energy and passion seem as good as it's ever been, so I'm assuming that you'd like to after this season's over, after you're done doing what you're doing right now, is entertaining the opportunity to get back in and get on that sideline. <laughs>
0: I knew this would go, this, this interview wouldn't go without any hardballs, Jed. You know, you know, this is a great opportunity. I see it as a sabbatical right now, that after 45 years of, you know, it, when, I, when I think about it sometimes, you know, Kathleen mentioned, my, my lovely wife Kathleen mentioned, a lot of guys didn't become head coaches until they're 35, and that's a lot of years on it. So I, I've never had the opportunity to take a sabbatical, Jed, and just look at everything. So I know when at the end of this uh, year, I'll have a really clear picture of what's
1: next for me. Good. Well, and listen, Uh, over the 10 years, I've had the opportunity to interact. Um, When my son was little and we used to bring him up before those Michigan football (laughs) games, and you gave him one of those basketballs with the hand, he would know exactly where to put put his hand. Just the way you treated him and the way you treat people, it's just a really – feels good to to know you and to, and to see what all you've accomplished so I appreciate you being our guest today.
0: Jed Jet, it's it's an honor to be here and and be part of this thing and uh you know you and I are lifers in this in the in the, <laughs> in, the, in the in the sports world as far as this is what's really been important to us and and uh we we're both we're I think it's such an honor and a privilege to be coaching young men and women uh today because really there's a quote from a uh, from a A a professor at Michigan named Marcus Collins said he spoke at my leadership class and he said, you know, uh, integrity is a light. Send a signal. And and that is so important that all of us in these leadership positions get to send signals of how to do the next right thing. And uh, that's all we're trying to do. And if people can uh, can just if we can get those messages out over and over again, when telling the truth was really important at
1: one time in our country. And we got to do that again. I hear you. Well, uh, again, God bless you. Stay healthy and safe. and I appreciate you joining us today. All right. Thanks, Jed. Thank you, John.